Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone an opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and to study the word um, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, as we begin this new year, we're mindful of the fact that we often take the time to uh, take this time as we close out a year and begin a new year to reflect upon what we've accomplished during the last year, to focus upon goals and objectives that perhaps we have not yet reached and things we desire to uh, accomplish and see uh, realized in our lives. And Father, we pray that we might not be discouraged, but recognize that in this life we're always going to be fighting and struggling against uh, the three great enemies of the Christian life, our own sin nature, the world system around us that has impacted our thinking in ways much greater than we can possibly imagine, and the devil who is behind all opposition to you. Father, we pray that uh, we might learn in this coming year to grab hold of your grace in even uh, more intense ways than we ever have before, that we might come to learn that there really is no hope apart from you. There really is no happiness and no stability. There is no uh, meaning in life apart from our relationship with you and that we are here for a purpose. You have called us to represent you as ambassadors from the throne of heaven to the people here on the earth who proclaim the good news that there is salvation from sin, that evil does have a solution, and the only solution is at the cross. And there Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And because we have this this penalty paid, we can exploit your grace on the basis of your tremendous provision of God the Holy Spirit in our lives and that we can live in ways that we could never imagine overcoming circumstances, living despite negatives in our lives, and have real joy and real happiness and incredible stability because of what you've done for us. And as we continue our study in Romans, especially in this chapter, this fabulous chapter of Romans 8 that details these realities, may uh, God the Holy Spirit really make this clear in our thinking that we may revolutionize the way we look at our lives and decision-making, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 8. 
and tonight we're going to begin in about verse 12. We've worked our way through the previous verses, talking specifically last time about the whole doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit versus the filling of the Holy Spirit, remembering that every single believer at the instant of salvation is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit in a non-experiential event. That means we don't feel it. It's not something that gives us a, a feeling, a, a, a warmth, a glow. Uh, it's not represented by any kind of uh, activity. It is simply something that that happens along with numerous other non-experiential things, such as the baptism by the Holy Spirit, justification, adoption, all of these things that the Bible talks about that become ours and our reality at the instant of salvation. But the only way we can learn about them is when we come to study the Word of God, and then we realize how much God has given us and how much he has provided for us. And if we think about it, that's the way many things in life are. We're given many things in in life with our birth. We're given a certain amount of natural talents and abilities due to what is passed on to us uh, through genetics, through in our uh, inheritance, through our parents. And we only activate those things as we make decisions in life and decide to use them and to discipline ourselves and to make many, many choices. So ultimately it comes down to our volition and making the uh, right decisions to pursue uh, excellence and to exploit whatever it is we've been given. And as we study the Word, we come to understand what it is that we've been given spiritually and our need to exploit that. And so this becomes what becomes the foundation for our spiritual life is what Paul talked about at the beginning of Romans 6, which is our position in Christ, which is the result of what this event that never before occurred in history prior to A.D. 33, that is the baptism by the Holy Spirit, that identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection that set us completely apart uh, unto God uh, and part of his family. And it also involves, as a result of that, something we're, look, we're going to look at tonight, and that is adoption into God's family. And because it is adoption into God's family, it is adoption into uh, God's royal family. And with that comes something called inheritance. And inheritance is one of those extremely significant doctrines in Scripture that is not always understood by many people. In fact, the average reader of Scripture thinks that inheritance is something that is common to every believer, that all believers are equally heirs uh, of God and of Christ, and that heirship or inheritance of the kingdom of God, we run into that phrase in some passages, that that is equivalent to getting eternal life and going into heaven. And yet what we discover is when we look at these passages, and we'll see some of this tonight and the next time, that in if, if we look at these inheritance passages, inheritance is based on behavior. Inheritance is based on choices. In, inheritance is based on works. But salvation is a free gift according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So if inheritance is based on works and salvation is based on a free gift, 
then salvation is not the same as inheritance. They are two different things. Now, there are some aspects of our inheritance, as we'll see, that are true for every believer and are part of salvation. But there are other aspects of our inheritance that are based on choices and based on volition and based on uh, our decision to grow and mature in our Christian life. Now, just for a little review, if we go back uh, to verse, uh, <clears throat> just go back to about, let's say, verse 7. Verse 7 uh, or verse 6, let's, let's see, see, verse 6 is an explana- explanation, and it's talking about a general principle. This is something that's true for unbeliever or believer. Anyone whose mind is set on the sin nature, whose life is energized by the sin nature, uh, that the result of that is going to be death. Verse 6 says to be carnally minded. The Greek word there has to do with the flesh, another term for the sin nature. To be carnally minded is death. Now, that is a general principle. The unbeliever has no option but to be carnally minded. He can't be spiritually minded because he's not regenerate. He is spiritually dead. The believer can make a choice. If the believer is walking by the Holy Spirit, then he's not being energized by the by the flesh. That's what we looked at last time. But once we determine to stop walking by the Spirit, then the result is that we go into that default mode of walking by uh, by by the Holy Spirit. I was talking with Jim Myers today because I uh, made the decision due to a lot of things that happened this last fall not to go over to Kiev, go to Kiev this year. And if I were going to Kiev this year, I would be, I would not be here right now. I would be on my way over and I would be starting to teach, uh, this coming Sunday. And so Jim is teaching the course on, uh, rewards and inheritance, uh, in my place. And so we were going through the notes and he's, uh, added some things to what I had originally done. And we always, uh, kind of play off of each other that way and had done some good things. And so we were going through a lot of the different passages in the seven letters to the seven churches just to work our way through those because they're all about rewards and judgments. And as we were talking about that and talking about this whole concept of walking by the spirit, I use the analogy of Peter walking on the water. As Peter comes, sees the Lord Jesus Christ out in the boat, uh, or the Lord Jesus Christ had walked on the water coming out to the boat, Peter wanted to get out there and show that he could do that as well. Uh, he was always uh, extremely motivated to uh, trust the Lord. He was just energetic that way. I mean, that's, that, that's something we miss out is he was highly motivated. And people who are highly motivated not only make great decisions and see great successes, but they also uh, trip and fall on their face a lot. But so often we look at the failures and we forget the great success. As Peter starts to walk on the water and his, his focus is on the Lord, as long as he is focused on the Lord, he's walking on the by faith on the basis of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to enable him to walk on the water. But before he sank, he took his eyes off the Lord. Now, taking his eyes off the Lord wasn't in and of itself a sin, but it put him in a position where he quit trusting 
and he put his eyes on something else. And that's what happens when we walk by the Holy Spirit. And Jim made this great observation. He said, he said we, we always focus on the fact that he took his eyes off the Lord, but Peter walked on the water. We forget that great success. He trusted the Lord and walked on the water. And we always tend to go to the negative and go, yeah, but he took his eyes off the Lord. But he trusted the Lord, and he did walk on the water. And that's just incredible. So anyway, Jim and I had a great conversation this morning about that. But that's what every believer can do. We can do the equivalent spiritually of walking on water, something supernatural, something miraculous in our everyday life when we walk by the Holy Spirit. It's the same principle, but we have to keep our eyes on the Lord. We have to keep focused on the Word, and we have to understand those dynamics of the spiritual life and having that focused faith, rest, mental attitude. And if we don't have it, then we're just going to slip. We're going to look at the waves of of testing, and we're going to slip beneath the waters of carnality, and that ends up in death, not eternal condemnation, but in a temporal death uh, that is non-productive in the Christian life. So Paul says to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded, and here he's talking about focused on God the Holy Spirit, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That's the result of being spiritually minded. We have that abundant life that the Lord promised us. And then he explains that. Notice the because. All through this chapter, it's really important to watch those initial words because it tells us that it's either an explanation, that would be for or because, or it gives a result or conclusion, so then or therefore, or in some cases like verse 9, it builds a contrast. So Paul then says, gives the reasoning behind this in verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity with God. The carnal mind, the mindset and energized by the sin nature is always hostile to God. It's not just a little bit hostile to God. It's not just partially hostile to God. It is completely hostile to God. No matter how it dresses itself up in all kinds of legalistic works and going to church, you know, somebody can go to church, be involved in prayer meetings and prayer groups, and they can, uh, in many cases, share their testimony, and they can do all kinds of things all through the energy of the flesh, and it has no eternal value whatsoever. They can be completely energized by approbation lust, by power lust, by various different kinds of uh, of lust patterns that manifest themselves. They can be energized by uh, jealousy and envy and a desire to show themselves better than others, but uh, none of that has any value eternally. But on the outside, to you and I, they appear the same. The person sitting on the right side of the room with their head bowed, their eyes closed, praying, and the person on the left side of the room looks the same, head bowed, eyes closed, but which one's in fellowship and which one's not, you can't tell. The person on the left that's witnessing to somebody, the person on the right that's witnessing to somebody, one person's doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit, the other one's doing it in the power of the flesh. You and I cannot discern the difference. One person is giving, another person's giving. We can't discern the difference. Only God can and and that which is done in the power of the flesh is hostile to God because it's man depending on the arm of the flesh for success, as the uh, psalmist says. So the carnal mind is at hostility with God, 
For it, that is the carnal mind, is not subject to the law of God. It's doing it under its own terms. So then, verse 8, those who are in the flesh, if the carnal mind is at enmity against God, then Paul then concludes those who are in the flesh, that is operating on the sin nature, cannot please God. And we live in a world today where it is a rare instance for pastors or teachers to understand this distinction between doing it in the power of the Spirit or in the power of the flesh. It's muddied up. Much of theology today is influenced by Calvinism and Reformed theology. And I had, uh, when I was in seminary and many other times, I have had professors and instructors who just fail to understand this. In fact, they failed to understand how you would recover from sin, and they didn't teach the significance of 1 John 1, 9 and confession of sin, which is covered in many other ways all through the, all through the Scripture. But here we have a clear description of the believer who's operating on the sin nature, that they're hostile to God, they can't submit to the law of God, and by that, that's not the Mosaic law. That is the mandates of, of God in the New Testament. They're not able to submit to the law of God, for they cannot please God when they're out of fellowship. Now, how in the world can you recover from that? You can't. And how in the world can you think that somebody can be a little bit carnal and a little bit spiritual because they have mixed motives? Mixed motives, let's look at that concept a minute. Mixed motives is like having something with a little bit of leaven in it. It's all good, but a little bit of leaven. And Paul says in the Scriptures that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It doesn't take but a little bit of wrong motivation, wrong attitude, being out of fellowship, and no matter what you're doing that's good, it's done from a wrong motivation and done a wrong way, and a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And it never will be right. It doesn't matter what the results are. And so you have today a lot of people who are running around with a lot of God talk and a lot of Jesus talk, and yet they have no um, nothing going on that is biblical, spiritual, or really of the Holy Spirit. And it's it's extremely sad because what these churches and pastors and groups have done is completely deceive people into thinking that their emotions and what the, all the feelings that are generated going to these kinds of churches, that this somehow means that they're closer to God and they're as as far away as they they could possibly be. They are, they may be saved but they're not getting anywhere in their Christian life. They don't know how to go forward. They're stuck, and all they're doing is they're baby Christians. They're still in diapers, and we all know what babies do to diapers. And that's all they're doing through their life, and they don't know how to clean anything up, which is confession. So verse 7 says, because the carnal mind is enmity. It's hostility. It's an extremely strong word. Enmity. Uh, not able to submit to the law in the flesh, but you have a big contrast there in verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's the starting point. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. So the starting point in verse 9 is being a believer and being indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And then he says, and if Christ is in you, 
And here he's talking about uh, a shift here towards the uh, abiding relationship or fellowship with Christ, because that's the purpose for the indwelling of the Spirit. The body is dead. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also, that's the potential, also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Then we come to a conclusion in verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So we are in a position of indebtedness because everything's been paid for us, and we accept that as a free gift, but we're now in debt to the grace of God. This states the principle. We are debtors not to the flesh, so not to, which means to, which would mean to live according to the flesh. So we're not to live according to the sin nature. Then we have an explanation in verse 13. It starts with that word for, and then it begins with a series of first class conditions. So that's an assumption of the truth of the first part, which leads to the result of the second part. If you live according to the flesh, so assuming that you're living according to the flesh, that's how it's being written. If, and we're assuming you are, if you are to live according to the flesh, you will die. Not eternal death. Remember, there are seven different kinds of death in the scripture. There's physical death. There's spiritual death, which is is true of every person who's born. Uh, We're born physically alive, but spiritually dead. There is, uh, there's carnal death. There is uh, our positional death when we're identified with the death burial, uh, with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is um, uh, eternal, eternal death, eternal condemnation. There's sexual death. These are just some of the different deaths that are in Scripture. And there is operational death for the believer who lives according to the sin. He will die. He will not be able to produce anything that has eternal value. That's the focus here. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will live a death-like existence. You have eternal existence and justification, but you will have this eternal death-life existence. So you have the first part of the statement, the protesis, which is the which is basically the grammatical term for the first part of a conditional clause. If you are living according to the flesh, if you are living your life on the basis of the sin nature, you must die. You will die. It's a it's an imperatival result there, indicating the consequences of that death. But in contrast, if by the Spirit If by the Spirit, first-class condition, you are uh, putting to death, putting to death the practice of the body or the deeds of the body, you will live. Both of these statements, you must die, uh, is an infinitive and indicates the natural consequence of living according to the flesh, and you will live is a future a passive that shows the result of living by means of God the Holy Spirit. And the phrase there, 
uh, for the Spirit is just the, your normal dative use of the Spirit there, indicating He's the means by which we do what? We put to death the deeds of the body. So here's another way in which death is used here. It's, and, and a core idea in death is often separation. For example, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God. When we believe, when Adam and Eve believed, they are, that restoration of relationship occurred and uh, is, was restored. So we, put, we have a separation that should occur here from the deeds of the body. This is another way of Paul, that Paul uses to talk about the deeds of the, of the flesh, the sin nature. So believers are to be putting to death, that is separating themselves from the works of the sin nature. And that only comes about by what? By making decisions that I'm not going to react that way. I'm not going to respond that way. I'm not going to give in to those feelings of anger or resentment, or I'm not going to follow through with that lust pattern. I'm not going to let that control my life right now. Now, right now, if you're a baby believer, may last a nanosecond. Right now, if you have a little time in grade, it might last two or three minutes, maybe five or ten minutes. And as we mature uh, as spiritually, then it lasts longer. But what we're supposed to be doing is putting to death the deeds of the flesh, not saying, well, it's, it's really hard, I'll just confess my sin later. That's not how it's done. We are to be putting to death uh, the deeds of the flesh removing that from our life. That's the focus of the metaphor, separating that uh, from our life. We're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And then there's an additional uh, reality here that we have to understand in terms of this distinction with children with um, that comes in the next verse. The next verse says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God... These are sons of God. Now let's stop a minute and think about this. Now we have a further issue. There are believers who are not led by the Spirit. And what this means is they're not following the Spirit. They're not walking by the Spirit. The Spirit is maybe objectively leading, but they're saying, "Ah, I'm going this way, I'm going that way, I'm not following your leadership. This isn't talking about the fact that the reality that God the Holy Spirit leads every believer. But God the Holy Spirit doesn't make every believer follow. Remember uh, last week I talked about Galatians 5, that there are two different passages or two different words that are used in Galatians 5 for walking. At the beginning there's a command that we are to walk by means of the Spirit and we won't carry out the deeds of the flesh. That word is peripateo. And peripateo is a word that simply focuses on the mechanics of walking and putting one foot in front of the other. And you walk along one step at a time, taking things one decision at a time, one issue at a time, not looking down uh, the path to the chasm that's coming up or to the rough patch that's coming up, but just focusing on one step at a time right now. Storkeo that comes along at the end of that section, about verse 26, talks about following in the steps of the Spirit. There's an order to it. So it's emphasizing another aspect of walking, following in the steps of the Spirit. But see, there are a lot of Christians who don't want to follow in the steps of the Spirit. 
They want to follow their own path. They don't want to follow the path laid out by the Spirit, which is the Word of God. They want to chart their own course. They want to use all the God words, all the Jesus terms. They want to wear the little bracelets that say, what would Jesus do, and wear all the little witness wear, and all this other stuff. But it's superficial. It doesn't go any deeper than their uh, than their clothing because they don't understand any any of the mechanics. And, and the stoicheo believer is the one who is following in the footsteps of the Holy Spirit. He's always leading, but Christians are not always following in those uh, in those footsteps. Now, the ones who follow are actively being led by the Spirit. They're doing what the Spirit says to do through the Word, and they are following those steps, those verses, those protocols laid down in the Word uh, for us to go forward. The ones who do this over a period of time reach maturity, and they're called sons of God. It's a technical word from the from the uh, uh, Greek, huios. It's not a, a baby. It's not an infant. It's not a child, but it is a mature son. And so what Paul begins here in uh, verse 14 is to lay out a and chart two different courses of action in in the lives of believers. You can have a destiny as a believer that is mediocre or a failure, or you can have a destiny of a believer who is a success and identified uh, in the seven letters to the seven churches as an overcomer uh, believer. The problem is, is that we take a verse uh, like this, as equivalent to the phrase uh, sons of God or actually children of God in John chapter 1, verse 12. But it's a different term. John 1, 12 is talking about technon, uh, which is a term for children, not sons. These are mature sons. So we have to realize that at the instant of salvation, every believer is regenerated and adopted into the royal family of God. We're regenerated, we become a new creature in Christ, but we're just a little whiny baby in diapers, and we don't know anything. And and what Peter tells us in uh, in First Peter two two is that we are to desire or hunger for the Word like a newborn baby. And if any of y'all have been around newborn babies when they get hungry, they just start screaming for food. They want food. They want somebody to feed them. And they want that right away. I'm seeing some heads nod out there. Yeah, they want to be fed. And and a lot of new believers are that way. But if you don't feed them, then their appetite starts to go away after a while, and they'll their 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 systems start to shut down, and they quit demanding food. And this is where 98 percent of American Christians are today. They've been starved for so long that they don't even know that they're hungry. Years ago, I went on a um, long outward bound type of uh, experience <clears throat> with uh, Honey Rock Camp out of uh, which is uh, Wheaton's camp up in the north north uh, north woods and at the end of two weeks of canoeing and backpacking we did this three-day solo and we weren't to have food for a number of reasons that was part of the goal was to go three days without food and to fast, but one of the most significant reasons was because there were a lot of bears in those woods, and if you had any food with you, then the bears would come in at night 
and they would rouse your little camp. And we were all spread out about 100 or 200 yards apart from each other, so there wasn't any way to get any help. Nobody had any 1911s in their backpack to protect themselves uh, from any marauding bears, no 357 Magnums or anything like that. And so you knew that you had to make sure you didn't have any food. Well, after about the first day or so, your appetite began to naturally suppress. Drinking a lot of water, we were right on the shore of Lake Superior, which keeps a mean average, a mean temperature, not an average temperature, a mean temperature of 33 degrees year-round. And so that's too cold for bacteria to develop. And so it's uh, perfectly good to drink all the time, or at least it still was at that time. This was in the uh, about 1980, I believe. And so we had all the water we could drink, and I couldn't believe it. By noon of the second day, I had no desire for food. By the end of the third day, you know, the ap- appetite's completely gone, and you don't care about food. You're not interested in food. The, the next day, we all were gathered up, talked about our experiences, got loaded up on a couple of uh, trucks and vans, and were taken back to the base camp about 30 miles away, and then we were dropped off about 12 miles, 13 miles, half a marathon from the base camp. And after three and a half days of no food, preceded by two weeks of uh, backpacking and canoeing with very little food, then we had to run the last uh, 13 miles back to the base camp. And then when we got there, there was a sumptuous, sumptuous meal for us. And you really didn't want to eat that much. But, over, but once you started eating, that appetite kicked into high gear. Now, I think the spirit, spiritual hunger is something like that. If you don't feed newborn baby believers, then they're not hungry after a while. They, their appetite gets suppressed, and that's what happens in all these churches. You don't hear the whiny babies crying to their pastors that they need more doctrine, they need more teaching, they need to learn something because they've been starved so much, they've been put on a spiritual fast that they don't want to hear anything. They don't want to learn anything. They don't want to eat any spiritual food. But those who haven't gone too far, when they start hearing the truth, a lot of times all of a sudden they wake up and they become spiritually energized and they want to eat. That's the idea that Peter has in in 1 Peter 2, 2, that we are to desire the sincere milk of the word so that we can grow by it, by the word, not by singing, not by entertainment, not by fellowship, but by the word. We grow by the gra- in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're regenerated, but then we have to grow. So we start off as babies. Uh, brephos is a Greek word for uh, uh, an infant. Technon can be a child from infancy, from being a brand new baby at birth, all the way up to when they are an adult, mature son. Then we have the term huios, which describes an adult son. That's the word that we have here. Those who follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit, these are the ones who become sons of God. These are the ones who become adult sons, mature Christians. And you only get there by walking by the Spirit and following uh, the leader of the Spirit, the leadership of the Spirit. Now, several passages in the Scripture are important 
in reference to this. One that I mentioned earlier is John 1.12. John 1.12 talks about the fact that we're saved as children. John 1.12, as many as received him, that's used as a synonym for believing in his name at the end of the verse, as many as received him. See, the previous verse said that Jesus appeared to his own, but his own received him not meaning the Jews rejected him. But as many as did receive him, as accepted him as Messiah, to them he gave the right to become children, technot, children of God, even that it, which in this sense is sort of an ascensive use of the, of the conjunction chi, which means for that is to those who believe in his name. So how do you become a child of God? You believe in his name. At that instant, you become a child of God. You're not a child of God because you are a creature of God's. That is the teaching of liberalism. Uh, I've had people, when my first church, there were a lot of people who uh, liked to watch um, Robert Schuller on Sunday morning, and they also liked to watch the broadcast from First Methodist Houston. I was down near Galveston. And they had these ideas. I remember the first time I taught, there were a lot of great people in the church too. It was kind of, it was a real mixed bag, great learning experience. You want to have a church like that when you're young and when you're just getting started because you need to learn and go through those hard knocks. To get that kind of a congregation at the end of the run is tough because you don't want to deal with all, all the, and you want to, you don't want to do all the head knocking that needs to, uh, uh, needs to come along. You're too tired after 40 years of uh, dealing with sheep. So, um, but there were many people who think that everybody's a child of God, and that that's you know that's the so-called Christian civil religion of America. We're all children of God. Everybody's a child of God. But <clears throat> what this t- teaches is that the only way to become a child of God is to believe in His name, which in the context of the Gospel of John is to believe. Jesus is who he claimed to be, the eternal Son of God and the promised Messiah. So we're saved to become sons, not to stay as babies. Fifth thing we learn here is that several passages indicate sonship is a result of character, not simply faith. Now, in case you got lost on some of those points, the first point was at the instant of salvation, every believer is regenerated and adopted into the royal family of God. Second, at that instant of salvation, everybody's a baby. Everybody's a little crybaby, little whiny baby. Then third point, huios is an adult son. There has to be growth. It doesn't happen automatically. It only happens as a result of decision after decision after decision to uh, partake of spiritual food. Fourth point, John one twelve, so it shows that we're saved for this ultimate purpose, uh, not to become, not to stay babies. And then fifth, several passages indicate that sonship is a result of character, result of spiritual maturity, not simply the result of believing the gospel. Now that's really important because some people want to make sonship equivalent, and some of these passages equivalent to the gospel. But what is the gospel? The gospel is that salvation is a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You don't work to get a gift. You don't work to earn a gift. It is something freely given. But these passages talk about sonship as being something earned. 
something that's the result of character change, something that is the result of growth. For example, in Matthew 5, 44 and 45, Jesus says, but I say to you, he's always contrasting the truth with the off teaching, the shaded version of the Pharisees. He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That should be a <clears throat> sign over everybody's uh, doorway in times of political persecution. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be the be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Well, wait a minute. I thought over in John one twelve that John said that it's by faith. That's to become a child of God. But this is becoming a huios of God, a son of God. In order to be a huios, to grow to maturity, we have to be obedient. We have to uh, enact in our lives the mandates of Scripture. So Jesus says, In order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's grace orientation. So uh, uh, just the, the common grace of God, rather. So how do you become a son of God? You have to grow to spiritual maturity. You have to have uh, unconditional love towards those who love you as well as those who are, of your, who are enemies. Another verse is Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, this isn't talking about world peace. This is talking about our world peace. This is talking about this is talking about peace between fallen human beings who are born in a state of enmity with God and God who is uh, reconciling the world to himself through Christ. Reconciliation is a term that is um, always related to peace. The way we are peacemakers is through exercising our ambassadorship representing God and announcing the gospel that there is peace between you and God, you need to believe in Jesus Christ and this peace becomes a reality in your life. So the peacemakers are those who are witnessing to and evangelizing those who have not never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. So the peacemakers are blessed because they're, they're called sons of God. They're growing to maturity. They shall be called sons of God. And then when we go to the end of the New Testament, to the end of the book of Revelation, we have one of those uh, <clears throat> passages that uh, people always get uh, confused about. And, and I encourage you, if you've never gone through the Revelation series before, take some time and at least go look at the, the passage in Revelation uh, 21, 7, and 8, because this is so, so very important to understand. Revelation 20, 21, 7 talks about inheriting, and 21, 8 talks about losing an inheritance. So the context here is talking about inheritance, not justification or getting eternal life. In 21.7, we're told, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. So that 
means if you want to inherit everything from God, you have to do something. It's works. Wait a minute. I thought salvation was not by works. That's right. That's why overcoming can't be equivalent to gaining eternal life. Gaining eternal life is a, is a free gift. So inheritance is the result of overcoming, and the one who overcomes grows to spiritual maturity, shall inherit all things, and he's promised, uh, Jesus says, I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But then we have the contrast to the person who spends his life just living in his, according to the sin nature, as much as he did before he was saved, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, the key word there is that word part. We've studied this before. Uh, there are many people who take that to mean that they shall have their destiny there. They shall have their role in the lake which burns with fire. But that's not what the word means. It's a Greek word, miros, which is used to designate that part of a will that specifies the inheritance to an heir. So it should be translated, they shall have their portion of the inheritance. So it's not talking about them, it's talking about their portion of the inheritance. So the picture here is that here's an, an inheritance that was set aside for this individual. But because they failed to mature and qualify for the inheritance, rather than receiving the inheritance that would be distributed at their, at their majority or when they become mature, that inheritance is they're disqualified. They still are in the family of God. They still enter heaven, but the inheritance is thrown uh, into the lake of fire and destroyed for eternity. It's, they're never going to qualify for it. So it's not talking about losing salvation. It's talking about losing inheritance. And this is seen throughout many, many passages, and I did a lot of in-depth study of that whole concept when we went through the book of Revelation. So the overcomer is the one who grows to spiritual maturity. The non-overcomer is the one who lives according to the sin nature. So the one who overcomes will be a son. It works again in the sense of pursuing spiritual growth and spiritual, uh, spiritual maturity. So when we look at Romans, back to Romans, we look at Romans 8, 814, for as many as are led, that is those who are actually actively being led following the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, these are the mature ones. For, now we have another explanation coming up in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Now, what he means by spirit of bondage is he means bondage, the slavery, which to sin which was we were set free from at the instant of salvation through the baptism by the Holy Spirit. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is the Hebrew or Aramaic term that it's equivalent to daddy. It's a term of endearment between a son and father. Ima is a term for mother. Abba is the term for father. You go around Israel, you always hear the kids calling to their father, Abba, Abba, come look at this, Abba, look at this. Uh, Abba and daddy are equivalent. It is a, a, a very intimate term of a child to 
to the Father. So we are adopted into the Father, into the family of God, and He becomes our Father. So this introduces us to the doctrine of adoption, fundamental doctrine. And I want to look at it two ways. First of all, we have to understand something about the historical background, and that may be as far as we get this evening. And then we'll look at its, uh, at its doctrinal significance. We're adopted into the family of God. This means that, God, that now for all legal purposes, we are part of God's family. He, he has put, and we'll see this under the, uh, under the category of the sealing of the Spirit, he, he basically puts his brand on us. It's, this is a good Texas doctrine. So that we're identified forever and ever as his. And we can't lose that. It is a permanent adoption. Now, when Paul talks about adoption, he covers it in both uh, Romans 8 here as well as in uh, Gal- uh, Galatians uh, chapter 3 and 4. And he, just, he builds on <clears throat> the Roman and the Greek ideas, but, but he sort of borrows from both. Uh, you know, he's, he's not, uh, when you use metaphors, you're not using everything in the comparison. A metaphor or simile always compares one thing to another, a simile is a stated comparison such as white as snow. There are a lot of different characteristics of snow. White is the one characteristic that's the focal point of the comparison, and it's a stated comparison using the word as or like, white as snow, and then you have the, uh, the, literal, uh, uh, the literal symbol or the literal sign in terms of its, of its reality. So when you look at adoption, it's a metaphor. Not everything related to either Greek or Roman adoption would apply, just certain features of Greek or Roman adoption uh, would apply. In Greek adoption, Greek adoption, the practice of adoption emphasized the family relationship. Uh, a man during his life or by a will after his death, isn't that interesting, could adopt any male citizen into the privileges of his family. So the, a father a may, or a male could adopt someone at the time of his death, and you'd never even know them actually. Uh, they may have already be dead, but according to the terms of the will, you're adopted into his family, which gives you the, all of the privileges that pertain to that particular family. So that is a point of comparison with the family of God because Jesus Christ dies on the cross and because of his death on the cross, we can be adopted into the family of God and be given all of the privileges related to uh, family membership. <clears throat> so that uh, the adopted son is supposed to, in, Greek, in the Greek model, the adopted son would accept all of the legal obligations and the religious duties of a real son. So he becomes uh, the son in reality by choice, and he has all these legal obligations that are set upon him. So when Paul emphasizes the family aspects of our adoption, he has the Greek model in mind. The Greek model focuses on the, those family realities. And that's especially true in Romans chapter 8. And <clears throat> Paul in Romans 8 emphasizes the reality of our adoption as part of what happens with the baptism by the Holy Spirit at that same instant in time and all the different things that, that happen 
One of those is we're adopted into the uh, family of God. But, and so the emphasis here is on the, in, in Romans 8, is on the impact that that should have on the way in which we live. Now we have a new obligation because we have been adopted into the family of God. In Roman adoption, the Roman custom was much more severe and demanding. Roman law emphasized a severe authority of the father over the son. In fact, the Roman fa- the father in the Roman system could could just at the snap of a finger put everyone in the family into slavery for the rest of their lives. He is the complete tyrant over the over the family. And uh he is a tyrant over the son <clears throat> so that the son is not any better than a slave until adulthood. Now, that fits more the model of what Paul is illustrating when he's talking about adoption over in uh, Galatians. The reason the Romans gave such authority to the, to, the, uh, to the father was that they were trying to protect the inheritance and protect the purity of the, uh, of, of the aristocracy. So if a natural son is a loser, if he's a failure, if he's incompetent, if he just can't carry the, the banner for the family, then the, uh, the father can disinherit him and he can bring in an adopted heir. Now, anybody think of, a, of an illustration of this? Ben-Hur. Uh, Ben-Hur is... Uh, Judah Ben-Hur, that's where the name comes from. He's a Jewish aristocrat who is um, uh, framed for an attack upon Roman soldiers as accidentally knocks some tiles lo- loose off of the roof and they fall down and hit, hit the soldiers. And as a result, he's put into prison and then he's sold as a uh, slave and he goes into the galleys and he's a galley slave. And then he's involved in, the, in, this, uh, in this huge battle at sea, and he saves the life of a Roman tribune who then adopts him as his son. And then when he shows up back in Jerusalem, he goes by the family name, he has the family seal, he represents everything in the family, even though he's uh, not a blood relation and he's an adult when he is, when he is adopted. So that film shows a great, great illustration of uh, the history of Roman, uh, Roman adoption. So in, in the uh, Roman system, there's a ceremonial purchase of the one who is going to be adopted, which is referred to as redemption. So he's purchased in, through this uh, ceremony. Uh, so if this, the, the son, new son was a slave, like in the case with Ben-Hur, if the son was a slave, then an actual purchase price is paid for his freedom. He's redeemed from slavery. And then as a free man, there is, uh, he is then adopted into the family. So Roman adoption emphasizes inheritance or the possession of certain things, not a blood relationship. And it can relate to a blood relationship as well as an unrelated heir. Now, in, in a Roman system, in the first 14 years, a son is put under a pedagogue or a tutor. This is what Paul talks about in Galatians. He's put under a tutor, and he's basically treated as a slave that's inferior to the slave who's the tutor or the pedagogue, 
And the role of the pedagogue is to discipline and to train the child of the aristocrat. So in those early years, there's no rights for the child, for the son, for the first 14 years until he is old enough at the age of 14 to receive uh, the toga of youth, which indicates his, his new position. And then this indicates, is, is even for a blood son, there is sort of an adoption ceremony as he's recognized and made part of the family. And the father announces that the son has now been part and accepted into the family. Now that's all the time we have for, but you can see where this is going. Now what Paul does is he's going to draw from these two historical uh, analogies that are familiar to his readers to show that there are privileges that we have as believers because we've been adopted into uh, the family of God and we now have to live up to that family name and we carry that banner forward. And so there's an obligation that is put upon us as believers to live in a way that brings honor and glory to the, to the uh, to, to God, and this is because we're now adult sons. So we'll come back next time and look at that, and then connect it to the doctrine of inheritance. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this this evening and to uh, see how, uh, in your oversight and sovereignty, you set up uh, these kinds of uh, cultural. Uh, redemptive analogies that help us to see and understand what has transpired in a supernatural realm uh, at the moment of our salvation and that we are now members of your royal family. We've been given certain privileges and certain uh, responsibilities and obligations now to carry on uh, the family name and to honor the family name. And that means that we are to live as an adult child and not as an immature baby. And only when we live as adult child do we really uh, discover all of the privileges, all the rewards, all of the blessings activated that you have already given us. And we pray that we might not settle in the Christian life just for uh, minimal accomplishments, but that we might press on to uh, maximize everything that you have provided for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.